The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Over the last two weeks, we've been looking at the events of Pentecost, and you'll recall that Pentecost was originally a Jewish feast celebrated 50 days after Passover called the Feast of First Fruits because at that time the people would bring to God the first of His fruit from His harvest that He'd given to them. It's a Jewish festival. And here in Acts 2, on this Pentecost, God has chosen to provide another greater harvest, a harvest of people, and He's bringing in the first of this fruit. That's what He's doing there. This day was selected when He would finally pour out His Holy Spirit on His people. Fill them up, direct them, empower them by the Spirit, especially for witness. This day had been long promised in the Old Testament. Jesus had promised it, and now finally it comes to pass, and it was evidenced by this little bitty community of people declaring the mighty works of God in numerous known human languages. And all the worshipers who were in town for this festival, they heard in their own language. They heard and thought, what is this? These simple, uneducated people know all of these languages and are excited to talk about God in these languages? What's going on? And Peter stands to explain it, quoting Joel, saying that the day of deliverance has finally come and that he moves immediately to Jesus and he calls people to repent, to turn to Jesus and to trust him and his death on the cross alone to pay for sin. And if you do that, you will be saved. Come to Him. Immerse yourself in Him fully. And you will be saved. And here's the kicker from last week. Not just be saved, but you will receive the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that we have, you can get in on that too. You can have the Spirit, the healer, the one who puts back together all the broken pieces, makes the world new starting in here. You can have that. Come, and 3,000 did. The first fruits of the harvest. The Spirit poured out, coming to live in and to fill and direct this now 3,000-plus member community. And then moving on from there into today's passage, from that amazing day followed amazing days. What we see here today is a little bit of what life was like in that Spirit-filled community and what life is supposed to be like in Spirit-filled communities, even today. Let me read our passage. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This passage this morning is a break in the action of the preceding passages. Luke, the author, is taking a step back 
describing a, a general scene, and even his language indicates that he's no longer saying this happened and then this happened and then this happened and so-and-so said that, but he's more taking a, and this is what they habitually were doing, regularly. This is what life was like for them. He's describing an ongoing, regular pattern of community life. And he does the same sort of thing, again, in the end of chapter 4 and in the middle of chapter 5. Each case, the portrait that he paints is, is relatively similar. And noting that Luke does this sort of thing again and again and again, and especially when we note that it matches up with the explicit teaching of a lot of other places, like Ephesians 4 and 5, noting this pattern of Luke's is helpful. because It makes something clear to us. Luke is not just writing FYI history. For your information, this is what it was like for them back then. Now, some history reads like that. You could, you could open up a history book and you, you could read about what it was like to be in New York City on the day that Japan surrendered and World War II ended, VJ Day. You can read that and you can say, wow, that must have been exciting. I mean, a huge party. I see the photographs, you hear the descriptions, the little first-person anecdotes. Such a relief, such a change, an, an end of an era in the beginning of a wide-open newness and freshness, hope a tinge of sadness, sorrow, but great relief and excitement. That must have been amazing. I mean, it's irrelevant for my life today, but it must have been amazing to have been there. Some history reads like that. You, you see it, you're excited, but you say, how does this relate? Luke's not writing that kind of history. When he writes, this is what it was like, he's presenting for us a portrait that is a standard and model for us. This is how they were, a community filled with the Spirit. The Spirit indwelt them, had come to live inside of them, and was now filling, that is directing and empowering them. That's what they were like. And that's what communities are like when the Spirit comes and fills and directs them. It's a model and a standard. That's what we're supposed to see here. That's what we're supposed to be here. You can even read this in reverse. You can say that, and if we're not like that, then we're not a Spirit-filled community. If we're not like that and we're not growing in that, then the Spirit's not at work because that's what the Spirit does. That's Luke's point. Now, we're not going to be exactly like this. There are a number of ways that we're different. We're, we're 2,000 years later, we're a different culture. This is the, the first fruits. This is the beginning of the harvest. We're well into the harvest. There's, there are a number of things that are a little different here. They are at a certain point, in a certain place in God's plan of redemption. However, this is the kind of thing that the Spirit does in people and in the communities that those people inhabit. So here's the main point we have to unpack this morning. When the Spirit of God fills the people of God, He leaves His mark on them. And the Spirit of God fills, not, not indwells. He, he lives in every believer. If you don't have the Spirit living in you, you're not a believer, says Romans 8. He lives in every believer. When he fills, that's a little bit different. That's directing and empowering, taking charge of, controlling. When he fills an individual and a community, he leaves his mark, like a footprint. If you're walking through the forest on a hike and you, you come upon some somewhat moist ground, you look down and you see a, a footprint there. And if you know about these things, you might say, oh, look, a deer has walked here, or a moose, or a rabbit, or something like that. There's a mark that that animal leaves. That animal doesn't leave a different mark. Moose don't have rabbit feet. They have moose feet. They leave a mark. 
So does the Spirit. And the Spirit walks on us, presses us, puts his imprint on us. He leaves a mark. Three marks, actually, in this text. There are probably others, but there are, there are three here. There are three marks that the Spirit presses onto a community, and then, following those marks, a wonderful, exciting, natural effect. That's how we're going to approach this passage. Three marks and a natural effect that follows. You notice as I'm talking here, I'm going to rotate my language back and forth between communities and people, because people make up communities. So what is true of, of many individuals is what makes up the community, but it might not be true of every single individual. So we might be doing well as a group, but you might be doing poorly in an area, or vice versa. We might have a problem corporately, but you do very well at that. So, so sift this and think it through carefully. And my language is going to rotate back and forth. Beginning with the first mark. First mark is the very first statement in this passage. And it's appropriate because it's also logically first. It's the foundation of the rest of them. The Spirit-filled church is marked by a resolute commitment to the Word of God. Spirit-filled church, Spirit-controlled, Spirit-driven, directed group of believers is marked by a resolute devotion to the Bible, to God's Word. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now why would they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? Because of who the apostles were and what it was they were teaching. Remember who these 12 guys are. These 12 are the unique, handpicked by Jesus, foundation of the whole church, on which he then builds the church. They're, they're never replaced. One, twelve set of faithful guys. They are the foundation of the new, the faithful Israel. We talked about this before. That's why there had to be twelve and not eleven or thirteen. There are twelve tribes, and these guys are the ones to whom the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be poured out. Talked about that before. That's who these guys are. They were eyewitnesses. Remember the requirement for Matthias? He'd be an eyewitness of the teaching, of the miraculous signs, of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They saw all this. He promised to them in John 14 through 17 that he would send his spirit to them to remind them of all that he'd taught them, to open their minds to teach them even more to fill them with the Spirit, to control them so that they taught powerfully and accurately. That's evidenced by the, the many miracles performed through them. We see that in this passage and we'll see it next week. God's Spirit rests in unique and in powerful ways on these 12. And people stood in awe of them. Next week says that people just came in through people, sick people in front of Peter because maybe a shadow would fall on them and they'd heal them. They were in awe of them because God was so powerfully and clearly moving through them. These are the twelve, the foundation, Christ's spokesmen. And so the church consistently devoted itself to their word. Because when they said, thus saith the Lord, the Lord said. Whatever they said, this is God's word, it was God's word. Whatever they approved of as being from God was from God. Whatever they rejected was not. Whether they spoke it audibly, as to these folks here, or they wrote it down in, in the books that become the New Testament, or they gave it to other people to write down in the New Testament, like what happened with Luke, or they approve of someone else, like Paul, for instance, and what he teaches. You can look at 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. You might jot that verse down to see where Peter 
puts Paul's writing on par with the other Scripture. Peter's acknowledging what Paul writes is the Bible. Whether they're saying it, writing it, giving it to someone else to write, or approving of what someone else wrote, the apostles, when they teach it, or when they, when they sanction it, it is the Word of God given to them for us. It's meant to be understood, obeyed, and trusted. And we must hear it and heed it. Why? Because we're commanded to? Yes, but, but much more than that. We must hear it and heed this word because in this word and in this word alone we find life. God brings life through his word. Listen to James. Of his own will, he, God, brought us forth, birthed us by the word of truth. God did it by the word of truth. And so the naturally the exhortation follows a few verses later. He says, then devote yourself, receive with meekness the implanted word that is able to save your soul. Don't just be a hearer, but be a doer of the word. The Word brings us forth. The Word can save our souls. Or as Jesus taught, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. God's Word gives life. Or as Peter taught, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You need something for life, that's spiritual life. You need something for godliness. He gave it to you. How? Verse continues, through the knowledge of Him which is in the Word. The Word of God is not just information. The Word of God is spiritual power in information. You need to know the information, you know the grammar, but there's power in it. It creates, it sustains life, it produces godliness. Given through the apostles... And these folks knew it. And every spirit-filled, spirit-directed person knows it. Because the spirit knows it. And the spirit drives his people towards the word. So they were given to this habitually. Wherever it was being taught, they were there. Passionate, devoted, it says passionate about understanding the content Accurately, and the intent, the intended effect on their lives. They were given to this. They knew, this is where I find life. What about you? I bet that everybody here owns a Bible. Probably several Bibles. This is America. We have the Word of God all over the place. We do not lack for His Word. We usually lack for reading his word and understanding it, getting it in here. How about you? Are you passionately, consistently, habitually devoted to the word of God? To the apostles' teaching come to us in the scriptures, the New Testament, and by extension, the Old Testament. Are you absolutely committed to getting it? Is it life for you? I never miss a meal. I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. 
unless I'm intentionally fasting or something like that. But I never miss because I get hungry. Do you miss the Scriptures? Do you miss feeding on the living Word? It's critical. And realize your spiritual enemies are well aware of this as well. They know God gives life through the Word. And so your spiritual enemies will do any and everything to keep you away from it. And you will find that anything works. I mean, anything works. You're going to be distracted by conversations, by hobbies, by visitors, by worries, by daydreaming, by phone calls, by fatigue, by guilt. I'm such a sinner, how can I go read the Bible? You'd be distracted by guilt from going to where guilt gets solved. Be distracted by gadgets that claim to help you read the Bible but actually keep you away from the Bible. Be distracted by other Christian books that are written by Christians but don't give you the Bible. Any and everything becomes a tool to keep you away from the Bible. And it's made worse by the fact that your own heart, part of your own heart, even as a Christian, part of your own heart wants to keep you away from the Bible too. If we're all honest, there are times when we find the Bible boring. That's an indictment of us, not the Bible. Let's be real clear about that. That's an indictment about what I find exciting, not the Bible. This is what gives life. And I would rather read the sports page sometimes. And so would you. Your own heart wrestles with you and tries to separate you from this book and to keep you from using this book. We're talking a lot about a renewed emphasis on, a renewed thinking, and a renewed attention to outreach and evangelism to those who are outside of, of the faith, those who are not Christians. And as we do that, we must be very careful that we not leave the Scriptures behind because there are plenty of people who will offer models for reaching outsiders that are very bible light at most contain principles or ideas that you can somehow trace to the Bible and the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita and the newspaper. Hardly word-centered. People are not given life by that sort of thing. They are not given life by charisma. They are not given life by good programs. Do not find life in great audiovisual. Now, should we chuck all that stuff? No. But we must make sure that everything that we use serves to highlight and make clear the Word. What's contained here and what is intended here. That's how God gives life. You can quickly gather a crowd through many other techniques, but it does nobody any good if they're not alive, actually. God gives life through the Word to others. And God gives life to you through the Word. We must be a people who are radically committed to, devoted to the Scriptures. And if you find you're not, and we're all not in some way or another, what do you do? You don't just read your Bible. That's part of it. But you repent. You repent and say, Spirit, take control of me. Fill me. Direct me. See, this is a result of being Spirit-filled, so... Work it back. Spirit, fill me. Give me a thirst for this. Help me to when I read it to find Jesus in it. Take off the blinders that, that so consistently cloud my vision. As Paul prays in Ephesians 1, give them sight in their hearts. When he's praying about Christians, 
Give them sight in their hearts so they can see you here. You say, Spirit, fill me. And then you pick up the Bible and you read it. You say, show me Christ in the Scriptures. Both those things together. Read the Bible. Get with other people who read the Bible. Pray, Spirit, help me to see in the Bible. Be filled with the Spirit. Spirit-filled Christians and a Spirit-filled community is devoted to the Word of God. It's the first mark. Second mark follows right after the first one in verse 42. A Spirit-filled church is marked by resolute commitment to fellowship. Resolute commitment to fellowship. They had coffee and donuts both before and after church. <laughs> Two chances for chit-chat. Wow. And sometimes they even got together to watch a football game later that day. Fellowship. I'm not saying those things are bad. In fact, I would actually argue that they are necessary. They, they are necessary, foundational, getting to know you sort of thing. It's really difficult to fellowship with someone that you don't know. So those things are important, but the, the fellowship in this passage is much more robust than that. Fellowship that God intends for us is much more than that. Start with a basic loose definition here. Fellowship involves the idea of close association and sharing. It's a basic commonness. Common place, common heart, a common cause, common goals, common possessions even. Come to that in a second. But it's no accident. The word for fellowship, koinonia, it's the name of one of our women's ministries here. Koinonia is the word used up here in the top, and it's the word used down at the end of verse 44, having all things in common. It's commonness. Like this. Think linked hands, linked arms, linked hearts. This is a community that's filled with the Spirit, and what He does in their midst is He creates an earnest desire in each individual for them to be a them, and not a me and a you. He creates a desire to make a community, a common group, a family. They go together to the temple to worship. They break bread together in their homes. They share life and they make it tangible by sharing their stuff. All things in common. Verse 45, And they were consistently selling their things and giving the proceeds to all, to one another, as the need arose. Here's where this togetherness, this commonness thing gets tested. What do you do with your stuff? What is having all things in common giving the proceeds away to sell stuff, what does all that mean? Is it a communal purse? Communal living? Something like that? Well, it seems like it could be that, and, and a number of Christians have argued that, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that verses 45 and 46 point us in a different direction and indicate to us that all things in common is more of an attitude than a physical, tangible reality. Verse 45, the believers own things. They were selling their possessions. The stuff that they had, they were selling it. Presumably they owned it before they sold it. And they were selling things as need arose. There was not a massive sell-off at the start. They kept things 
and then sold them habitually, regularly, as need arose. In verse 46, they met together in their homes. They still had houses, still owned things. So I don't think that it means there's a communal living or a, a common purse here. God's way is not nearly that easy. He did say that easy. Sometimes we, we read the, the common purse thing, and that sounds really radical and really hard to us, so we assume that it must be more mature to do that, and I just can't quite get there. It's actually less mature because of what God is trying to do in each of us, what he's working in us. Think about what we were made to be and to do way back in the beginning. We were made to be stewards of his creation, to take God's stuff and use it towards God's goals with God's values and God's methods. Steward. Someone who takes care of something entrusted to them but does not own it, but has been given it. I don't steward that guy's stuff. I steward this stuff that's in my hands for him. We were made to be that. Now that all got messed up in the fall, but it's part of what we're going to do again in heaven forever. To steward God's new creation towards God's goals, to God's glory, by God's methods, and with God's values. And like we do with our kids, he's doing the same thing with us now. You give your, if you're a parent, you give your kid a dollar at some point in your life and say, here, take care of this. There's going to be a hundred opportunities to spend this today. You need to save part, give part, and then wisely spend part. And then eventually you give them two dollars. And then eventually you give them five dollars because one day they're going to have fifty thousand dollars and you want them to be wise stewards of it. So you train them. That's what the Spirit's doing with us. Gives us a little bit of stuff now, puts it in your hands. Because one day you're going to have a ton of stuff that you're going to have to steward. And he doesn't want you, he doesn't put the Spirit in you to get you to not steward things and give everything away so you don't have any responsibility. He puts the Spirit in you to refine your stewarding. It's as if he says, I put this in your hands and I leave it there, but I'm going to pry your fingers off of it so that it can move more freely. And I'm going to renew your heart so that you see things and see people and see stuff like I do. So you don't love the stuff, but you love me and you love my people. And you'll choose wisely what to do with it. So go and get next to people, he says. Get to know them. Join yourself to them. Love them like I do. Walk with them. And use the resources that I have put in your pocket at this moment to meet their needs as they arise. And do it wisely. Maybe even sell your house or sell your car to meet their needs. And do it wisely. That is infinitely harder than the common purse. Because it makes for a battle every day, every moment, every day. How should I spend this money? What should I do with it? What should I buy for myself? How nice of a car or nice of a TV should I buy? Because every dollar I spend on this is a dollar I'm not able to spend somewhere else. What should I do? How much should I save for the future and spend now and give now? And to whom and when? Those are really difficult decisions. It's going to drive you back repeatedly to God and say, Spirit, direct me. Fill me. Give me your values. That's God's goal. 
And he wants you to see this people as your family. The stuff that you have is in your charge, but it's not yours. It's his and therefore ours. Think of it like your own family. I get paid every two weeks. This church writes me a check, automatic deposit. My name's on it. Not even my wife's name is on it. It's mine. But our kids say, how much money do we have? Do we have enough money for this? And I could say, you don't have any money. I have money. But I don't because we both know that it's our money. It's my money. I can direct that check. I can sign the check. I can put it anywhere I want to. But I realize this is our money given to me. And then I put it in our common bank account and we use it to meet our needs. The church, you have stuff. It's his stuff and it's our stuff. Hold it in common. Sell it to meet the needs that come up. Be a wise steward. You know, when? Which needs? There are all kinds of needs all the time. That's wisdom. That's the spirit at work in you. Should you sell this thing now? Who knows? Walk with the spirit. Do what he seems to lead you to do. Hold things loosely. That's what they were like. Are you like that? Are you? There, there are a lot of us here who are like that. And it's been a, a pleasure and a blessing for me to know you because I, I see people modeling laid down life, laid down resources. I commend you. But there are some of us here in the building who are not fellowshipping in this sense. Just stopping in for a Sunday refreshment before you head back out on your solo flight. Not involved here, not laying down your life here, not laying down your resources here. The Spirit wants more, and it'll be to your blessing, but He wants more than that from you. This is the problem in our society in general, that we are islands unto ourselves. We see it playing out in, in financial stuff, but also in, in just plain church attendance and church service. Many, 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 even here in our midst, but many, many, many Christians in our country, a phrase that's used to describe them, consumer Christians, who say, I come to this group like a person comes to a refrigerator. I open the fridge, I stand there and say, what looks good? I think I need a little bit of this and a little bit of that and two slices of this. And then I close the door and step back and make my sandwich and go feed myself. Many of us view the church like that. Rather than us getting into the refrigerator and saying, this is me, I am this. And when the fridge is empty, you move on to the next fridge. There are good reasons to leave a church. Most people don't leave a church for any of them. Leave a church for, I don't like the music, or it's not meeting my needs. You need to think about that. You need to think about that. Families work out problems and bear with one another because they are in common. I grew up with two sisters. Did we always get along? No. Did I leave and say, I'm going to get another family all to myself? No. We work stuff out. That's how a church family is. Fellowship in common. Spirit-filled community is marked by fellowship. Continuing on in verse 42, come to the third mark of a spirit-filled church. 
I'll be more brief here. The Spirit produces devotion to the Word of God, creates fellowship amongst the people of God, and thirdly, the mark, a Spirit-filled church is marked by sincere worship of God. It's marked by sincere worship. Read, they were devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Literally, it's to the breaking of the bread. It's some bread in particular. In our parlance, it would be communion. They were devoted to communion and the prayers. Keeping with the Jewish system of worship, they regularly went together up to the temple at the appointed times for prayer, and they met by themselves at the appointed times for prayer. Now, certainly all those prayers that were in the Jewish cycle of worship had taken on some new meaning, and they were now certainly more Jewish, more Jesus-centered than previously. But the point is that they were devoted to them and that they kept them. What they saw as worship, they did. Corporately, verse 46, going down to the temple together for prayers, breaking bread in their homes, probably communion joined to a full meal together, as was the custom. They were together corporately. They were together a little more intimately in the home. And all the while, it's being conducted with a heart that is full of gladness and sincere joy. Praise. They received their food from God with gladness and with sincerity and were praising God. They're together corporately, they're together in a little more intimate, but at the root of it is my heart that is worshiping and praising. That's what the Spirit does in the heart and in a community. Creates worship. God-centered joy. A thankfulness to Him for all things. Are you devoted to glad-hearted, personal, and corporate joy that is worship? Corporate, coming to church to worship getting together in small group to worship, while also attending to your heart where worship comes from. And does it come from you? Does it come out? You don't have to... Genuine worship is not worked up. Genuine worship is sincere delight. If you tell me to, to look at a sunset, you say, isn't that sunset marvelous? And I don't think it's marvelous, but I say, yeah, marvelous. I'm, I'm lying a little bit, but I'm not worshiping the sunset. I'm not even admiring the sunset, though my words might have seemed so. For it to be genuine worship, it has to be sincere in here. You must actually enjoy him and think he is worth everything. Worship is declaring the worth-ship. You've got to think he's worth everything for it to be actual worship. Is that coming out of you? At all times and in all places, while you eat and while you pray and while you go to church and while you go to small group, during your morning commute, while you're at work, while you scrape the ice off your car and while you mow the lawn and while you clean the house and pay the bills, does worship come out? If not, what do you do? You don't start saying He's worth more. He's worth more. He is. He's great. Because it's not true. You repent and say, Spirit, come and fill me. Come and live inside of me and show me what's worth in Him. 
what's worship-worthy in him. Show me. Show me the scriptures. Let me experience it in my life. Help me to worship. Paul in Ephesians 5 says, Be filled with the Spirit, and what immediately follows is worship stuff, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything from God through Christ. Worship comes from the Spirit filling you. If you're not worshiping, repent. Say, Spirit, come and control me and show me what's worthy of being worshipped. So the three marks committed to the Scriptures, to each other, to worship. And when those three marks happen, when you have a body that's characterized by that, Spirit-filled and Spirit-directed and those things coming out of it, something marvelous happens. There's an environment created in which something natural and good happens. It's the fourth point, the, the effect. A spirit-filled church grows. A spirit-filled church grows. Qualitatively and quantitatively. In quality and in quantity, both. All the stuff we've been talking about would be qualitative growth. Word produced life, a deeper, more profound community, worship running through us. That would change who you are individually, and it would change us as a body. People would be able to see that, would marvel at it. We would find favor in their eyes. That comes about in us when the Spirit moves on us and awe strikes us. The Spirit falls on us. God presents himself center to us such that he fills the windshield of your life. Like if you're driving on 215, on the south section of 215, eastbound, and the Wasatch front fills your windshield. Occasional bridge goes by, but it's the Wasatch front filling your windshield. It's what God does when he fills with the spirit of community. He moves the center, fills your windshield, strikes you with awe, produces devotion in you to the Scriptures and to each other and to worship. And then what happens after that qualitative growth is He adds to your numbers daily, those who are being saved, because He uses you to fill them with the same awe. He introduces Himself to them through you. He doesn't say anything in here about the believers witnessing, but remember the context why has the Spirit been poured out? Primarily in the book of Acts, you will receive power to be witnesses. The implication is that this is going on all of the time. People see them praising, in the middle of verse 47, having favor with all the people. The people are looking at them and saying, that is some interesting community. There are reports from early church where people, outsiders would look at Christians and criticize them for a number of different things, but grudgingly admit they take care of their poor and our poor. That's interesting. We don't take care of our poor. They take care of their poor and our poor both. Huh. That's an interesting community. People who are in common such as that and use their resources to be witnesses. And what God does through that 
He pours himself out on other people as well, and they see him. And he, this is all about God here, God adds to our number. We don't, he does. We, we declare the mighty works of God. He adds people to our number. Are you concerned about that? Because if I look around and I say, and as I do sometimes, how many people have been added to our number by conversion? It's a very small number. Especially in recent years. A very small number. So I work this back and I say, why isn't the Spirit at work here like I think He should be? Certainly there are some things we need to address. We don't pray. I don't think we pray nearly enough. We're not actually around people enough. We're not declaring the mighty works of God to them enough. There are things we need to address. And there are things that are just in the timing of God need to be trusted. The point is not to try to figure out when God's going to do what and to try to actually all problem solve all this. Right here, at least. What I want to ask you about right now is, are you patiently discontent with what's going on here? Patient, because it's God, and it's God's timing. We don't do it. The Lord adds. We've got to be patient with that. But we need to be discontent, like anybody is. Like the persistent widow is when she goes and goes and goes and doesn't get what she wants, she goes back again. She's doing that because she's not content with the status quo. She's going to the one who can do it for her. Are you patiently discontent and asking God in earnest, pour out your spirit here. Do something, Lord. Use me. Use us. Grow us, please. Father, send the Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and to work through us in power as witnesses like you said you would. You need to be there patiently discontent. Spirit-filled community grows. When the Spirit of God fills the people of God, He leaves His mark on them. He leaves His mark specifically by causing us to be devoted to the Scriptures, devoted to one another, devoted to prayer. And then He brings growth in His time and His way, but He brings growth. Pray with me that He would fill our community. Let's pray. Lord, would you make us the kind of people that you want us to be, the kind of church that you want us to be? Lord, I don't know what that is. I don't know when all that's going to work out. But it's at least clear that we need to be passionate about the Scriptures and the life-giving Word that's there. We need to be passionate about being with one another. Be passionate about worship, about God-centeredness, God-centered joy and gladness. Those things are clear. So, Spirit, I pray, would you work them into us, please? Bring repentance. Fill us. Change us. And then, Lord, in your timing, grow us. And in the meantime, make us patiently discontent. We trust this to you, Lord. This is your church. You, you will do with it what you want, and we want you to do with it what you want. But this is our prayer, that you would use us to expand your kingdom, to carry Christ 
to all of the earth and to give all of the nations to him. Would you use us in that process, Lord, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.